Before a second reading, I want to take a moment of pastoral privilege to say thank you to someone here. She's going to be very embarrassed that I'm doing this. But we have a very special person who's been a lot to our church for many years. She's currently serving on session, and that is Bethany Leggett. Bethany, wave your hand. Bethany has been at the heart of our church in many different ministries for the whole time that she has lived here on St. Simon's, and the time has come where she's been called away to a new job and a new place. She is going to Wake Forest University. If there are any ACC basketball fans here, now you know someone you can call up to go stay with uh, when they're in town. Uh, But we are so excited for Bethany, and we will miss her dearly as she moves on to this new chapter in her life. Our second reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark. We pick up a story where immediately prior to this verse, Jesus has been in a boat with his disciples in a storm. And the storm calms and the boat grounds itself on the shore. And Jesus and his disciples climb out and they head for the tombs. So friends, let us listen once more for a word from God here in these verses from the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. Now they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, when he saw Jesus from a distance, the man ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him a question. What is your name? My name is Legion, the man replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, and they went into the pigs And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank, imagine this image, into the lake, and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, and he was sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And they told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, draw near to us now. Stir something, disturb something within us. Open to us, O God, the word and the way that you would have us follow. 
Use the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to glorify you. For you and you alone, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today is the fourth week in our series on God's vocabulary. We began with sort of the building block word for all the words in God's vocabulary four weeks ago, the word faith. We moved on to what is perhaps the hardest word for any of us to grasp, the word peace. Last week we visited the word water, which is kind of a descriptive word for who God is and what God is about. And this week we consider the word tolerance. And tolerance to me seems like kind of a funny word to include in God's vocabulary. It's funny for one thing because it shows up nowhere in the Bible. You can go searching and you won't find the word tolerance. You'll find the word tolerate a handful of times, eight or nine times. But most of those times it's used in the negative fashion. Do not tolerate this. Do not tolerate that. So what are we doing talking about tolerance. You know, the idea to include this word in this series on God's vocabulary, it first came to me when I pulled out a magazine from this pile of magazines that have been following me around for close to 10 years now. Do you all have any of these piles in your homes? They live maybe on a bottom shelf and they just sort of never seem to find their way to the recycling bin. It's part of a publication that's no longer in print, it's online, but each edition is made about a different word. Uh, Annie and I have borrowed a number of the words from this particular publication as inspiration for this series. And the edition on tolerance, when I pulled it out and I dusted it off, it was fascinating to read. This particular edition was published around the winter-spring of 2003. And as you read it, it's almost as if the pages of this magazine are trying to ring a warning bell. Consider what's happening around the winter-spring of 2003. The country we've just celebrated, not celebrated, we've just remembered the first anniversary of the awful attacks on 9-11. As a country, we are beginning to read more and more about demographics that are changing in our nation, how white Anglo people may no longer be the majority in our country for much longer. We're right on the cusp of a second front opening in the war on terror. Then, as is now, unfortunately, The extreme voices of different religious traditions seem to be controlling the microphone. There was this one line in one of the articles in this edition addressed to preachers, and it said, the preachers focus on tolerance, and between the lines at this time, it seemed to be saying, is urgent. The preacher's focus on tolerance is urgent. I have to tell you, 16 years removed now since that edition was published, it feels like that warning bell is a bit validated. We don't need to trot out all the statistics, right, to know that intolerance in our time is on the rise. 
It's a little bit like when you step out the door at 6.30 in the morning on St. Simon's in July and just feel the weight of the air, right? I mean, we can just feel the weight of intolerance building in our time. There's more war, it seems. There's more division in our churches, in our community, in our our nation, in our world, certainly. That invisible list that we all walk around with, that list that has the names of all the people we should supposedly be afraid of, it's, it's longer now. It's grown longer even in the past 10 years. And it begs the question, as followers of Jesus Christ, what is our response? As followers of the gospel, what do we have to say about living in this world that is as diverse and different and divided as ours? Are we people who are called to set up more barriers? Are we called to hunker down perhaps with our own tribes? Are we meant to refuse to accept anything and anyone who does not pass the smell test of our own orthodoxy? Or as followers of Jesus Christ, is there another way? Is there a different word, I wonder, that we are called to slip into the quiver of our own vocabulary? As I read our gospel lesson today, I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes, there is a different word. Yes, there is a different way to live. Consider the scene that is drawn for us by Mark. Here is a man who is living in a cave. A person who is so sick that he is known only by the name of that which possesses him. We are legion. Here is a person who has been cast out from his tribe, right? He's been sent far away. He's been put on another side of a wall called distance. He's been forced to live where literally only death and pigs reside. I mean, as I read this passage and consider that scene, it seems to me to embody the lengths to which human bias and intolerance can lead. To me, this scene, this is what the warning bell is warning us of. A situation like this. And so what does Jesus do? It's always interesting to pay attention to Jesus in scenarios like this. Jesus, remember, he's been in his own hometown or nearby teaching along the lake shore. And according to Mark, Luke tells it a little different, but according to Mark, Jesus makes this trip a great distance across a body of water for the sole purpose of finding and healing this man. As soon as it's done, he'll get back in the boat and he'll cross back to the other side, Mark says. I mean, think of all the reasons Jesus has not to make this trip. Not just the difference, but the fact that it's a different country. It's a different people who practice a different faith. They have a different diet. All the pigs, right? They're not Jewish. Not only that, but he's going to visit a demon-possessed man, a man who is dangerous, so strong that not even chains and shackles can hold him, and yet Jesus goes. 
And I can't help but think that in his going, Jesus is trying to make a point. And the point Jesus is trying to make is to teach his disciples, his disciples, that the bias and the prejudice and the fear and the intolerant ways of the world are not the ways of God. Separation and stigma, not the way of God. Rules and beliefs and dogma and orthodoxy, even security ahead of compassion, not the way of God. Comfort at the cost of another's life, not the way of God. It seems to me that Jesus is preaching on the topic of tolerance here without ever using the word. I mean, think about it. Over and over in the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus notices, Jesus sees people who others seem to consider not even worth a second glance. There's the story of the centurion's servant. The people around Jesus, they hear the servant of a pagan occupier. Don't bother healing him. And Jesus says, this is a child of God. Think about the Samaritan woman. Samaritan? There are enemies, they say. And Jesus says, no. Here is someone who I want to sit and visit with. Or the tax collector in the tree. Everyone around Jesus looks up and sees a criminal, a cheat, a crook. And Jesus sees someone whose home he wants to visit. A garrison demoniac. The world sees a crazy foreigner, and Jesus sees a person in desperate need of God's love. I think, too, of a criminal on a cross. People around Jesus look up and they say, there's someone who's getting what they deserve. And Jesus sees a person who soon he will be with in heaven. Where the people around Jesus, where we are so prone to only see people by their adjectives. That kid, that family, that's an immigrant family. That war, that place, well, that's a a Muslim country. That friend that you used to have, well, that was a Democrat friend. That sibling that you don't want to invite over because that sibling, that's my Republican sibling. That neighbor, that gay neighbor, I love the person, but I hate the sin. Do you really love the person then? Where we see people by their adjectives, God always sees them by their proper noun. Beloved child of God. See, Christian tolerance, it doesn't just mean having the ability to say things like, well, I have no problem with those people, I just don't spend much time with them. Christian tolerance, it means taking the time. It means going the distance. Taking the time to see if you, if you can see that person differently. 
And the best place for all of us to begin that work is the exact same place that Jesus does. By asking a simple question. What's your name? You know, while we were in the Holy Land in Israel, I swear every single day there was a moment where I just thought to myself, God, I mean literally God, wish I could just pluck up all of you. I wish I could just pluck up this this community. I really wish I could just pluck up this country and drop you into this conversation that we're having right now. Because every conversation we had almost every single day we were in Israel, it began with someone telling us their name. Suddenly, when they tell you your name, they cease to just be Palestinian or Israeli. They cease to just be an imam or a rabbi or a pastor or an activist or a settler. Suddenly, they become someone with a story, someone with substance, someone with content and context and complexity. And it always began with that question, tell us your name. Friends, if you're wondering where Christian tolerance begins, if you're wondering how we respond as people who live in this world where intolerance seems to weigh down on us like the humidity of July in St. Simon's, that's a pretty good place to start. Ask someone their name. Ask someone if you can get lunch with them. Get to know someone who is different than you. Christian tolerance, it requires relationship. It requires taking the time to get to know someone. And here's the thing, you don't always have to agree with them. But you do have to respect them. And you do have to love them. And the reason you have to love them is because of this thing we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the story of a God who goes to great distances to seek us out, to peek into the caves that we are living in, to love us despite the chains that are binding us in our lives. There was this amazing moment, our last full day in Israel last month, our group, we met with a sheik, or is it a sheikh? Never thought I'd meet with a sheikh. Bethany's not in your head, I think that's right. His name was Hassan, Hassan Manasra. He's a Sufi sheikh. The Sufis, best I can tell, are sort of the Presbyterians of Islam. They're pretty cool people. <laughs> Hassan has spent his entire ministry and adult life doing interfaith and interreligious dialogue. Peacemaking is the business that he is in. Peace both, both within his own Islamic faith, but also peace with other faith traditions. He seeks to facilitate dialogue and conversations that will bring people to new understanding, to deeper understanding. He said, you know, it's not really hard work, but neither is it easy. And it's not easy, he said, because my work, it requires of me to work with radical people. 
radical within my own faith, but also radicals within other faiths. He said, moderates are kind of boring. Moderates don't take much to convince. You've got to go to the edges. You've got to work with people at those extremes. You've got to convince them if you want real change. You have to convince them why dialogue and understanding is better than war and violence. It's not hard work, but neither is it easy. It's amazing to sit with this man because you get the sense that here is a person who is going the distance. He's not just hanging out with his neighbors in the village, right? He's got in his boat and he's gone to the other shore. Here's a man who's ducking into caves day in and day out, learning people's names, hearing their stories. Here is a person practicing tolerance. It's not hard work, but neither is it easy. And neither is it often very safe. He told us an amazing story about when his son was 15 years old. He's older now, joined his father in the work that he's about. But when his son, Abed, was 15 years old, he had gone to Jerusalem for a trip. The family lives in Nazareth. It's about an hour and a half, two hours to Jerusalem. And while Abed, 15-year-old boy, was there in Jerusalem, he was targeted by radicals. Targeted because of who his father was and the work his father was about. He was beaten so bad that he was put into a coma for three months. Hassan told us how he and his wife, they stayed by their son's bedside there in the hospital nearly every day of those three months. I cannot imagine what that must be like. And he said the other layer of it for me, of course, was... I sat there wondering if this is really worth it. If this work of tolerance and of peacemaking is really worth it. The night came when his wife laid down on the floor by their son's bedside to sleep and Hassan took up his chair right there by his son's bedside. And at some point in the night, Hassan noticed for the first time Abed's hand slowly began to move. And not long after that, Abed's eyes began to open. And not long after that, it seemed like Abed was trying to to say something to his father. And Hassan leaned in and he said, would you like to say something? And Abed said to his father, I love you. And Hassan, feeling the weight of all of that, the weight of these questions, the weight of that love, broke into tears. And he leaned in further to his son. And he asked him, what now? And Abed whispered back to him, we will continue. Friends, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, as followers of Jesus Christ, May we continue in that work as well. Amen.